Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm always within that space. And I want to push those limitations. Push them. It's easy to look back on a journey and make sense of it. But when you're in it, you can't always see it. I'm Helga Davis. Researcher, writer, and critic K. Anthony Jones joined me in the midst of his searching. And as he sat down, full of energy, passion, and curiosity, we talked about what it means to make your own way and to make a path where one may not exist. This is my conversation with K. Anthony Jones. Hello. Hello, how are you? <laughs> That's so funny. I just instantly started smiling when I saw your face. <laughs> That's a nice thing. It is, because I was like so much nerves, so many nerves and everything else under the sun. <laughs> why? Uh, why? Ooh. Um, oh, I always have nerves. Oh, I have like... Nervous about every, nervous about everything. Um, that's just a part of my personality. <laughs> okay, but why this in particular? Because I think it was like as a conversational, and it's like there was no way for me to prepare, and I was like, "Well, who am I?" And I always think like, "Well, who am I?" And my, sometimes I place myself as like, "Well, I don't necessarily understand my own voice sometimes in the world, so I mm-hmm. always channel maybe other people's voices that I admire in the world." Uh, so it's like, so am I going to be Toni Morrison today? Or am I going to be Ursula K. Le Guin today? Or am I going to be <laughs> K. Michael Hayes or anybody that I admire? <laughs> so it's like, who, like, what voice am I thinking through these today? You feel like you're going to be okay? I think so. <laughs> yeah, because you, you are going to be okay. So here's what happened. This time has given me or afforded me an opportunity, and I'm using that word now because it has not been the word I've been using and may not use <laughs> forever, to, to not be on the road, to not be out in the world in the way that I am accustomed to being out in the world, meeting people, bumping into people, and saying to them, you should come and talk to me. And so one morning I got up and I was doing my meditation. And after my meditation, I was asking the question, with whom should I be speaking or with whom can I speak in this moment when I can't leave here? And where perhaps someone I would be able to speak with, uh, I won't meet them. And so I started looking. And your, your face kept popping up in whatever algorithm life there is for me on Instagram. So if I read about you, 
Your interests are arts and architecture theorists with secondary interests in science and technology studies. Namely, I research artists, anthropologists, and scientists. And so I read that. And I said, who is this? And I'm, I'm curious to know who else is out there. Who else is, is so complicatedly, wonderfully exploring the many things that they can be, their many interests, and how are they doing that? So it doesn't seem to me that you have done these things in order to land in a spot or in a particular place, but these are indeed the things that excite you and excite your brain and have informed your path. And that for me and for this work is a very, very important thing. And as we begin to come out of what has been the, the COVID year of being inside, of not being able to see people, of not being able to travel, of not being able to, of not being able to, of not being able to, who are we wanting to emerge as? I'm not. Who, who are the people <laughs> that, that have influenced you and helped you be in all of these places? Oh, my God. Where do we start? Wherever you wish. Where does the story begin? Where was I tossed? I think my story starts... Um, growing up in rural South Carolina in the middle of nowhere and not having any access to anyone except for my parents in this house. There's a house, there's a highway, and there's a cornfield across from the house. And there's within this house, whatever my interests were, we explored it. Mm-hmm. So at one point in time, I wanted to be an Egyptologist. And I remember a children's book that's not really a children's book because... <laughs> It was called by leaky um, mummies in Egypt because the language is so dense and complicated where she explains mummification <laughs> in the book. And I remember at one point, like, well, I want to be an archaeologist. I want to be an Egyptologist. And then it was also a lot of bits and pieces where I was tangentially interested in, like, architecture, I remember as a child, but I had no, no way of accessing what architecture history was. So by this point, we, I had a computer... And I only had the encyclopedia because we didn't have the internet. And I can only like look up this broad definition of what architectural history would be. And then finally, I ended up going to college. I went to Morehouse for undergrad, um, mainly because I needed to go to a place that had an airport. <laughs> Atlanta had an airport and that could take me to other places in the world. Um, and that was really big because I wanted to get out of rural South Carolina because there was no way I was going to grow and I was miserable as a person there. I remember I meet, meeting with the college counselor and I'm saying, I want to go to the new school. And she says, what new school? Ooh. She had no concept that there was a place called New School University. Ooh. Kids never left. 
the low country of South Carolina, mm. there was no way out. There's like literally if you're there, you're either you're you're impoverished. There's um, all kinds of issues with like even taking the SAT. If you didn't have a car, you had to go to Orangeburg, which is like maybe three to four towns over mm -hmm. to get to a site to take the SAT. So if you didn't have any transportation, like you were limited and you could only go to the community college. So there was many barriers that were placed in front of you in order to even think about getting any type of mobility to leave that space or that place. And I just remembered... There was something in me that was like, I am not staying here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but how I was able to access the world outside of rural South Carolina was through the, the limited magazine publications that I could find in like um, bookstores or even um, like Walmart. And I would see what people would be doing or what type of careers people would have. And I just became extremely interested in, interested in that world. And I would like, there were people that I saw in magazines that I would later in my life literally track them down to talk to them. <laughs> Tell me one person that you did that with. Who did you track down? I was honestly, one person I was able to track down that I read about in SS Magazine was Thelma Golden. You wanted to meet with her and talk to her about what? Well, at that time, I wanted to be a curator. <laughs> because this is now jumped to my junior year of college. I go to the Whitney Museum of American Art. I'm in New York from Atlanta. Um, I see the show curated by K. Michael Hayes about Buckminster Filler starting with the universe. So I get curatorial imagination out of that. And then I change my whole career path from wanting to be a public policy analyst to wanting to be a curator. Mm -hmm. So my junior summer, I come back to New York and I end up landing meeting with Delma Golden. I think the meeting was really good, but it was like I was very nervous. And I also had an expectation of how the meeting would go. But I don't think I necessarily knew what type of questions I needed to ask or what was I attempting to access at that time. But I was able to work with a curator art historian named Kelly Jones that summer as well. Because as soon as I got the internet... When I was in um, high school, I started emailing Farrah Jasmine Griffin. I started emailing um, Robin D.G. Kelly. So you started emailing people so that you could get access to your interests and try all these things out. But you've had so many interests in terms of, of possible career paths. What did your mom or your parents have to say about that to you? I have an older sister and a little brother. Older sister particularly. My mom and my father are, were divorced by this point. Ah, and everybody had okay. an idea of, about what okay. I should be doing or where I should go to school. Because it was like, they did not want me to leave the state. <laughs> my mom was the first intellectual that I came in contact with. Was the first person who um, helped me navigate all of these interests that I cultivated, but I don't think she ever thought that was necessarily a career trajectory for me in any type of way about where her kids may have possibly landed. I think mom spent a lot of time with me more so because it, I was just always around her and I was always underneath her. Were your siblings as academically curious as you? Or not as much? Were they, were they happy to, to stay in South Carolina? 
They were um, very much so happy to see in South Carolina, but they were not willing to take risk. I think South Carolina is like the third ring of hell. It seems like it seems like nothing ever works there. You have to be so small to exist in that world. Um, you have to give up so much. You have to be marginalized. You have to be. You have to be subordinate into the system. And it's just like, I just could not deal with that. <laughs> it's such a huge thing to hate where you're from or to recognize the limitations of where you're from. I've had to shoot out in so many directions because it seems like every single job opportunity that I had before going to graduate school, it was like, People would give me a job, but I would have this interview with them and I would have conversations with them about my fascination in visual culture or visuality. And I would make up this narrative of what visual culture or visuality could necessarily be, but that wasn't necessarily what the job position actually entailed. It seemed like I was always at the wrong place at the wrong mm. time. So in a nutshell, I will always end up getting fired. <laughs> and then at some point with me... It would be like the jobs would end, but I would actually, I would, in, I was happy that the jobs ended because at that time it was like, well, and I would sometimes calculate, okay, if this job ends, I have X amount of time before I need to find another job. So now I have time to sneak into Avery Library at Columbia University and go through the art history books. I have time to research. I have time to figure out what I'm thinking about. I have time to write. I have time and access to things I did not have when I had to sit yeah. at a sit at a job from nine to five. My first job, actually, I had worked with an artist named Iona Razil Brown. Um, but my actual first salaried position was as a producer at Art Partner because I had become interested in photo agencies. And previously to that, I was working in galleries. And then I had thought maybe I should try photo agencies. But I my... Mm -hmm intellectual idea of what a photo agency was, was completely different. Because I was looking at all of these books and I'm thinking these people mm. are actually reading these books in the office. Mm. No, they're coffee table books. Mm. <laughs> Wrong again. <laughs> so the first time I get fired from a job, I'm like 24, well, 25. It doesn't work out. And I'm like really upset about it not working out. But then I realized, like, why am I upset about things that are not working out where it's clearly not where I'm supposed to be? Right. So, and then from there, I basically take, like, maybe six months to a year, and I'm, like, researching and researching and researching and researching. Music helps us celebrate, contemplate, cope, and connect. And we've got the stories to prove it. Join me, Terrence McKnight, for the new season of The Open Ears Project podcast in which people tell us about the piece of classical music that has meant the most to them. That music might even wind up being meaningful for you. The Open Ears Project. Listen now wherever you get podcasts. But where are you living during this time? What are you, what are you eating? How are you feeding yourself? How are you keeping a roof over your head? Because part of your story that is really of interest to me is that you have tried so many things, that you've not been afraid to get fired or to fail, and that there's a kind of resilience that I think is important. 
you know, people always say to you, well, you know, you should get a job and be secure. But no one ever talks about how crazy it is to do something that you don't like every day. There's very little inquiry around what it does to a person to do a thing that you don't necessarily feel connected to or, or want to do. And so I really want to understand these steps with you because I think it's important for any person listening to this and especially for, for black and brown people to hear this because we don't get this necessarily everywhere we are. We may not get it. We may not have parents who have tried to do things. We may have parents who, who are just able to bring us here and to feed us and to clothe us, but who can't necessarily imagine for us and or imagine a different kind of world other than the world that they occupy for us. And so I'm, I'm wanting to slow down with you and really hear all the steps along this path because it's important. So my boss tells me I have a runway that things are not working out. So I have to start my exit plan. So I was able to secure enough money to start me to live on my, like live off of that. But I also was able to apply for unemployment. So you saved enough money to live off of for a year? Basically, yes. Wow. <laughs> That's literally the story of my life. <laughs> so the grind is on for you? Yes, very much you, so. You don't essentially stop moving? No, I never stop moving. Like literally from the time I wake up to the time I go to sleep, I'm always moving. I'm always thinking. I'm Even now? Yes. <laughs> Even now, mm. it never stops. I may wake up at 5 a.m. and I start collecting images because even though I'm not an art director anymore, I still like visuality. I continuously read everything. Or if I have to write an essay for someone, I'm literally sleeping in my bed writing. I'm at the gym writing. I'm always playing with ideas around narrative. I'm always thinking about what possibilities can I find myself. Being. Okay, but where's your space of quiet? Is there quiet for you? Is there stillness for you? Mm, there was only one time I had stillness or a space where there was no static. I call that like static. And I was sitting in the Institute of African American Studies at Columbia University. And I was sitting in the student computer room. And there was one moment where it was literally quiet, still. And then all of a sudden, someone came in and asked me a question and it went away. Hmm. Do you think... It is, in part, just a relentless pursuit of pleasure that you're on and curiosity. Relentless pursuit of pleasure and curiosity, but also mastery. Hmm. Say more about that. Mastery. I think it was like the first time I realized I was in love with postmodern art history was... When I was at Columbia University, I was a visiting student my last semester of college at Morehouse. And this teaching assistant by the name of Dr. Tina Rivers was telling me, you should really read Hel Foster, who's an art historian at Princeton University. 
And she said, redesigning crime. Just read the back of the book. So when I first read Designing Crime and read Hale Foster, I fell in love with art history. But his writing, his capacity to write, to think, is mastery that I don't possess yet. For me, I think it's like, as long as I'm awake, I have to continuously try to sharpen my writing, sharpen my thinking around images, sharpen my references, reading things in multiple ways, whether it's in art history, anthropology, geography, science and technology studies, consistently always trying to stretch my brain. <laughs> I mean, by now you know a lot. I don't think so. I think I don't know. And you don't think so? No. I look forward to the age when I'm like 50. <laughs> because then what's going to happen? Oh, let's see. Well, actually 56 because Toni Morrison wrote her magnum opus, Beloved, when she was 56. And Ursula K. Le Guin wrote Always Coming Home when she was 56. Mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think when you're in your 50s, you understand your terrain or what you're thinking about. How do you carve it out? How do you write it? And 21 years from now, I think I would be happy with my intellect. Mm -hmm. So you, from a very early age, have been curious about many things that were driven by your desire to get away from home. Because home wasn't actually big enough to, to hold you or to keep you or to satisfy you. Yes. Hmm. So then where's home? How are you defining home? How are you defining home? It became very important to have an actual residence, to like literally have a place to stay. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, I think for me, honestly, I may actually may not have a home. I may just be transient. The most important things are the books that I take with me. <laughs> What's important to you for me to consider about the, the spaces we occupy through your lenses of history and design? And also as it pertains to women and gender and culture and African-American studies, as well as the study of anyone or anything I've forgotten <laughs> that's essential to your interests. Mm. What's important to you? For me, I'm always interested in the translation of history and disrupting history, adding bottom-up history into the master narrative of history. You asked about design. Design becomes such a porous conversation for me because a lot of times for me it's not about design sometimes it's about narrative sometimes it's about it's about object-based histories and sometimes it's not sometimes it's literally about me thinking of a multiple choice puzzle of sorts and which is the best way to execute getting marginalized voices into the mainstream mm -hmm. And how do I use figures like Elizabeth Catlett, an amazing African-American um, sculptor, <laughs> sculptor draftsman. I weaponize her all the time. Um, and she's important to you because? She's important to me because I've always had some reference to her in my whole entire life. 
there was this book that I got when I was a child called I Dream a World, which is a reference from a Langston oh, yeah. Hughes poem. And I come in contact with her. But at the time when I come in contact with the book, the vocabulary and the, the book, the reading, I couldn't read it. But I saw this photo of her and then my mom read it to me, the narrative. Mm-hmm. So she comes back to me when I'm at Morehouse taking art history courses in a way that I start really critiquing the fact that she's a social realist artist and modern art history does not deem her as modern. But the deal with our history is that how do we critique who gets to be modern and who doesn't? Who Mm -hmm. gets to have politics and who doesn't get to have politics? Because her work is on par with what's going on in the civil rights movement in the late 20th century. She's also, she's a woman, so she's in Mexico with the Telegrafica de Popular and McCarthyism tracks her down there. And they Mm. basically try to pull her back to the United States and she gives up her citizenship and she stays in Mexico and she doesn't get it back until like 1983. And I think she gets a visa to come to the Studio Museum of Harlem. But all of those things, because there are many different artists who are called, like Jackson Pollock is called a communist, but that makes him a rock star. She is called a communist and her citizenship gets snatched away. Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. So what she's depicting is not considered modern by this standard, but what is modernism? Because you have all throughout the 20th century and late 20th century artists working in figuration and they're considered modern, but why is this African-American woman not modern? And everything she's depicting is a part of the larger narrative. I weaponize her to critique modern art history to say that all of these categories about periodization are arbitrary and bullshit. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, in in doing so, I'm trying to Bring her into the mainstream. <laughs> and to lift up. <laughs> lift up everybody who's been oppressed by that the canon. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, I try. I may not be successful in it, but we all try. <laughs> well, we don't all try, but you try for sure. What do you mean we don't all try? Tell me about that. Well, we don't. I think that there are lots of folks who are quite comfortable in whatever spaces they're, they're in, where they can be out of certain kinds of struggle, certain kinds of conversation. When I would hear people say in New York in particular that uh, we're all suffering the effects of COVID, I would giggle every single time. It's like, no, we're not. I see lots of people who don't seem to be suffering at all and whose lives have not changed at all, despite the fact that there are people in their city who are dying and having to work and and all the other things. So I like to think that people I know are concerned and lifting others up. And that's one of those those sayings from Toni Morrison, right? <laughs> that that's, that's one of our responsibilities is when we have power and when we have success, that we reach back and lift someone else up. But I don't know that we all do that. I would like to think so, but I, I know better. I think sometimes with me, wherever my worldview is at that time, I just think maybe everybody's there with me. But it's also, <laughs> taking, it's also taking me a long time to get to this point where I've been you know, speaking about bottom-up history. Because at one point in time, I would would have never wanted to talk about bottom-up history. Because? Oh, it was so many things because it was like people will always want to marginalize me as a scholar or as a person because it's like you're a person of color, so you must talk about artists of color. And it was like, I can talk about anything that I want. 
How about that? Why do I have to be marginalized within the locales of my body, mm. of who I am as a person in the world? Yes, that is how I engage with the world, but I can go anywhere that I want. Mm-hmm. And had been going everywhere that you want, if only in your imagination from the very beginning. It's a big thing for people to hear this, uh, that we are not limited by the places and the people we are born into. Yes, yes, but I think, I just, I don't know. People are like, but you don't, not everybody has the capacity to do the things that you do, but I'm like, yes, you do. Hmm. <sighs> yes, you do. Hmm. I mean, if I had to sit down and think about all of the times people have told me, you can't do this. This is, you have to stay doing this. This is who you are. I mean, people making so many claims on who I am as a person, where I've come from, what they think about me, and all of these things, I would have never left South Carolina. Right. So I say the hell with that. And Helga, look where you have been able to go. Look at the capaciousness of the work that you have produced. How have you been able to say, I'm going to do what I want? (laughs) (laughs) That's how. Yes. Yes. I just keep saying yes. Where are you going next? I am going into an art history program at Binghamton University um, because I need more time to formulate my ideas around art history because I want to be an academician. I want to push those limitations. Push them. It's very confusing to see someone like me saying the things that I say. What's someone like you? A black man, (laughs) a black queer man saying the things that I'm saying or having the interests that I have or being capacious in my interests and intellect. I think even that, I think that's an act of resistance and that's an act of being a revolutionary. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you got what you needed. I hope you got what you needed, too. And that was my conversation with Kay Anthony Jones. I'm Helga Davis. If you want more of these conversations, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and share with a friend. And don't forget to follow me at... H-E-L dot G-A-D-A-V-I-S on Instagram. Helga, The Armory Conversations is a co-production of WNYC Studios and Park Avenue Armory. The show is produced by Crystal Hawes Dressler with help from Darian Suggs and myself. Our technical producer is Sapir Rosenblatt. Original music by Michelle Ndege Ocello and Jason Moran. Special thanks to Alex Ambrose. Avery Willis-Hoffman is our executive producer. City and Bloomberg Philanthropies are the Armory's 2021 season sponsors. And now, the coda. And so... Right now, if we just sit here for a moment, 
and not say anything and not do anything. Let's actually do it. And so just take a breath and let it out. Are we here? Mm-hmm. Are you here? Yes. 